As always, a huge thank you to Starboard, who are once again this season's main sponsors. Starboard has a history of innovation across water sports, starting in 1994 by revolutionising the design of windsurf boards. And they've brought that bang up to date recently, bringing foil windsurfing onto the Olympic stage with their IQ foil package. Starboard got behind stand-up paddleboarding in a huge way in the early days and continued to lead the industry to reduce their environmental impact. Their focus on innovation brought them seven world champions at the ICF Worlds last year, and all of them were using their Lima paddle range. They continue to improve and innovate their boards and their paddles for all abilities across all flavours of the sport, including adventure. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website, which is linked to in the show notes. Happy 100th episode to the SUP FM podcast. Hello and welcome to this very special episode of the SUP FM podcast. I really can't believe we've reached 100 episodes of this show. The intention of the show, whether you're brand new to the sport or if you've been paddling a while, is to show you what's possible and where you can go next with stand-up paddling. And every single conversation has been a real eye-opener for me personally, as well as being a really enjoyable way to share and explore a sport which, although it's still new, it has clearly attracted a bunch of the most incredible people doing the most incredible things, and I've had a fantastic time helping them tell their stories. And what's made this episode so special is some of the messages that I've been left by some previous guests and friends of the show, including this message from world record holder, SupConnect Man of the Year 2022 and water safety campaigner, Brendan Prince. Hey, Simon, 100 episodes. That is awesome, buddy. Congratulations. Here's to the next 100. Thank you for letting me be part of that very little part of it in the last hundred and i wish you well for the next hundred smashing it keep doing what you're doing buddy take care so this episode is going to be different from our normal interviews and what we're going to do here is to look back across some of the episodes remind ourselves of some of the guests we've had on and relive some of those chats with a hundred episodes it's really difficult to choose the approach we were going to take to this but We've been guided by some of the general themes we followed throughout the seasons, which have included the adventurers and expeditions, the racing and the racers, the innovators and the industry figures who have done so much to develop the sport, themes like the environmental work that people have been doing to maintain the water, the how-to specialists with either the starter knowledge that we've featured, intended for beginners, or for those of you experienced paddlers looking for a different flavour. And finally, the things that we're all interested in, which is the mental health and the physical benefits that we get from stand-up paddling. And we're going to cover all those themes and name check and feature some of the many guests who have talked about them over the last 100 episodes in our special episode today. But before we do this, just to quickly step back in time, because I don't think I've ever shared some of the background to the podcast. And way back at the start, this was a collaboration between me in the UK and Nick, who is based in the Algarve. And we got together quite randomly. In 2014, I created a SUP leisure clothing brand called Hutch Supwear, which you can still check out at hutchsupwear.com. 
And uh, we got connected through that. And I ended up sponsoring and producing T-shirts for an event he was organizing to paddle down the Guadiana River in Portugal. And following that, our next collaboration was this strange new format we were both interested in. It was called The Podcast. And we set one up and we got going in 2015. We produced a first season and that showed that there were plenty of people out there with amazing stories and doing really interesting stuff all across the world. During that first season, my day job was getting increasingly pressured. And because of the time it took to create each podcast episode, it meant that towards the end of that season, I didn't really have any chance to devote any time to a second season. So I gave Nick the option to either crack on or put it on ice until we were both able to pick it up again. And that's basically where the podcast sat for five years. But we stayed in touch throughout. And over the next five years, Nick was podcasting about life in the Algarve and running his SUP school. And whatever time I had away from work, I was using SUP as therapy. I became an instructor and spent any spare time on the water paddling with my very good buddy, Sean Scott from New Forest Paddle Sport Co. And that in turn led me into sup surfing, downwinding and just a little bit of racing. In 2020, the pandemic arrived and I suddenly had a bit of time back and an opportunity to do something not entirely date job focused. And after a brief chat with my wife, Sarah, I then contacted Nick and we decided to pick things up again. And that led to the relaunch of the podcast, which has led all the way to here. And it wasn't that far into the comeback 2020 season where it became really clear that although SUP had been growing strongly up to 2020, after that time, after the lockdowns, it massively exploded. And there was a worrying lack of safety information. And with formal lessons pretty much on hold at that point, there was a big gap. And that led to our next collaboration where I wrote the first ever online SUP safety course aimed at new paddlers, which me and Nick recorded together. And we got it out there in the autumn of 2020. And it's something I'm incredibly proud of. It's kept updated and is a powerful resource for learning safety in one place for new paddlers. And it's over at supfmpodcast.com forward slash course. Nick gradually moved away from the podcast, leaving in late 2020. But I do want to pay tribute to him because the collaboration in the first couple of seasons was a huge amount of fun and I had a great time working with him. And since then, there have been a few more seasons and a lot of great guests. And there's been a few changes, including the support of some wonderful sponsors. And it's genuinely been a real privilege to have had some incredible chats with lots of really fascinating people. And just before we move on, this started as a collaboration and it continues as a collaboration. My wife, Sarah, has been an incredible support to the podcast and she helps on social media. So any contact on Instagram you've had with us, well, it could have been me or it could have been Sarah. So thank you, Sarah, for all the hard work you do. Okay, that's a lightning bit of potted history of the podcast. So what about the guests and what about the interviews? As I mentioned, there are some common themes that run through the various different episodes, and sometimes they all come wrapped up together in one guest. But all of them are underpinned by the tribe-type ethos that runs through stand-up paddleboarding and the shared love of the water. 
So let's start with the adventurers, the explorers and the expeditions. And we featured them right from the start. And female paddlers set the standard from the start as well. Guests like Cal Major and Fiona Quinn were first and second to paddleboard end to end, top to the bottom of Britain. Tati Coco Sup, in one of our first episodes, had paddled around Sardinia, which was quite an expedition. And then there came the blokes. The attempt by Jordan Wiley, whose quest to run marathons in the coldest places in the world was shut down in 2020 for obvious reasons. And he then decided, as a novice paddler, to set out and paddle around the coast of Great Britain before he was finally shut down after several months when he was on the north coast of Scotland in December and when there was another national lockdown and that brought his trip to an end. And he's currently somewhere in the world doing something exciting, I'm guessing, but he was kind enough to leave us this message. Hey everybody, it's Jordan Wiley here. I just want to say a huge, huge congratulations to Simon and his team. 100 episodes uh, connecting people to SUP through his podcast. Absolutely incredible. Onwards and upwards. Keep inspiring, mate. So we've had a huge range of explorers and adventurers, including two-time guest John McFadgen, who's been supping the world for some time now. And his story about the inflatable flamingo is well worth another listen if you haven't heard it. We've chatted to SUP Connect Man of the Year 2020, Canadian Mike Shawman who in 2022 has recently completed the Great Lakes Crossings, despite his disabilities from contracting Ramsey-Barr syndrome, which caused facial paralysis and a number of other issues, and which fundamentally affected his balance, which was not great for a paddleboarder. So a brilliant achievement, Mike. Congratulations. In 2021, Brendan Prince completed the full navigation of Britain, which Jordan had originally set out to achieve in 2020. And he is this year's SupConnect Man of the Year for both this achievement and also for his drowning prevention work and has a number of other challenges which he's embarking on this year. And I had two great chats with him on the podcast before and after his journey. And I also had the honour of paddling with him when he was passing my beach on his way around Britain. And just to say also that he's released his film Circumnavigate, which if you get the chance to see, I would highly recommend. On the subject of big adventures, I also spoke to Chris Burtish, the South African big wave surfer and adventurer who, as you do, has just come back from wing foiling the Pacific. And I talked to him about his astounding adventure where he successfully crossed the Atlantic Ocean by paddleboard. And that adventure is captured in his film, Last Known Coordinates. And one of the things people see whenever they see an incredible achievement like that is they see the event itself. They see the end product. And Chris has always pointed out that he didn't just decide to go and get out there. He had built up his water abilities and his skills and experience over many years from a base level upwards. And he put together the expedition itself through many, many months of meticulous planning, fundraising and preparation. In the film, they talk about you having a backup for a backup for a backup. But I know there was a famous philosopher called Mike Tyson who said that everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. So, you know, you had pretty <laughs> yeah. bad situations right from the off. I mean, you, 
you were about for ages before you set off, but you immediately got into a situation that you had to manage, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, there was just like within the first like three days, there were like a multitude of things that, that went wrong. Um, and that's always going to happen. You know, you're going to, you've got to prepare for that. And you've got, to, I think a lot of people, they might even put in the preparation, but they, you know, they they try and think through it as much as they can. And then when stuff goes wrong, that's not within that wheelhouse, they find it very difficult to manage that and find solutions. Whereas I try and think of every possible scenario and have worked through every single possible scenario, have a backup of a backup of, of a backup of every major system that can fail. Mm. Um, and then also work through mentally and emotionally, like what other possible things could happen, what it would look like, what it would feel like, and what would I have at my disposal in order to be able to find a solve for that and be able to adapt to that and be innovative and creative in order to be able to find a solution. But also focus on the things that are that need to be dealt with with an immediate sense of urgency and start unpacking things in regarding to the priority levels of how important they are to ensure your survival and then narrow them down and then deal with the one the ones that are um need a immense sense of urgency and deal with them immediately um, before they start stacking and become uncontrollable and unmanageable and overwhelming and will ensure a really negative outcome for you which could mean you not survive and i think that's a very difficult thing to do on a continuous basis all the time on a daily, literally on a daily basis. Um, and then still, you know, still paddle 12 to 15 hours a day. Like think of doing like a full Ironman every single day, except for, you know, anytime you're getting any sleep, which is never more than an hour and a half. Um, your bed's almost trying to kill you. you. It's never, it's always moving. When things are good, you're getting an hour and a half sleep. When things are bad, you're getting between four and a half, maybe three and a half and four and a half minutes because the waves that are hitting the side of the craft, um, which are sort of semi-turning you upside down, you can hear them coming. And when they hit the side of the craft, they break with such intensity and that the craft shakes around you and it feels like the, your little house is going to fall apart around you and you are thousands of miles from any other human being. You're in the middle of the ocean. It's cold, it's dark, it's black, and it's stormy. And you are nowhere from like so far from help that there's no point in even thinking of someone rescuing you. So you better sort your shit out alone by yourself very quickly. Um, and I, I think that's a sense of urgency and a, a sense of sort of resilience and be able to manage your mental and emotional state through that when you're getting fatigued and still be able to make the right decisions and get up and do it over again mm. every single day and through the night because you're also paddling through the night on a continuous basis. Another theme of the podcast is our how-to episodes, and we've had scientists and experts on to take us through sup best practice for skills, safety, tips for trying a new flavour of the sport, to answer general questions, and to give knowledge on wildlife and reading water, amongst other things. Tez from SUPMAG UK has appeared three times talking board selection, SUP surfing and foiling, and my mate Sean Scott from New Forest Paddle Sport Co., has been on twice to give advice to beginners and in our Ask the Expert slot. 
Lizzie Larbellesteer gave us important knowledge about managing wildlife encounters on the water. And Ted Speaker and New York Times bestselling author Tristan Gooley joined us to talk about his book, How to Read Water. And he introduced us to the Talweg. And while he took a sip of tea, I talked him through the tip in his book, which I've used most, which is how you can get an accurate idea of surf height when you're standing on the beach. Instructing is a really good way of bringing a whole lot of extra enjoyment into your paddle boarding. And every time I make the occasional cameo appearance at New Forest Paddle Sports, it's a real joy when you can see the excitement in people's eyes after a lesson and you know that you've done something to share the love of the sport. And I spoke about this in our adventuring and instruction chat in episode 81 with Ben Longhurst from the Water Skills Academy. And Ben also left us this message. Hi, Simon. Ben here from the Water Skills Academy, wishing you all the very best with your 100th episode. Keep up the great work and always great to listen. Cheers. But there's one how-to episode which has had more downloads than any other in the history of the podcast. And in that one, I spoke to Professor Mike Tipton, who is the world expert on the effects of cold water on the human body. And through his research, he's shaped campaigns and strategies to prevent drownings with his guidelines, which are followed by the RNLI, Fire and Rescue and other life-saving organisations worldwide. And in this episode, I talked to him about paddling in winter. But it's really important to know that cold water shock and its effects can happen at any time of the year and is particularly dangerous during the spring and summer months in lakes or in deep water when the air temperature is high and the water temperature is low. And one of the things I asked him in this chat was how can we better prepare ourselves for cold water? Is there anything that we can do to prepare ourselves to condition ourselves in advance? I know people talk about cold water swimming and and cold water immersion as a preparation for accidentally going into the water. Would that help a paddleboarder? Would that help condition them for an accidental swim? Yeah, I mean, when you think about protection, there's, there's two major routes. There's physiological and there's technological. And as I say, historically we've always chosen the behavioral slash technological route um and 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 in this context for a a, you know stand-up paddle border the technological stuff would be protective clothing of some kind of which you know most people know there's lots of that out there and you know and the major um objective of clothing that's going to protect against cold shock is to slow the rate of fall of skin temperature um, and cover as much of the skin as possible because the faster the skin cools and the bigger the surface area exposed, the bigger the cold shock response and the more uncontrollable and long-lasting the respiratory drive. Um, putting that to one side, the technical side, the physiological side is, yes, humans are very good at habituating to the cold shock response. So as few as six, two or three-minute immersions in cold water can halve that cold shock response more importantly, it means you get control back of your breathing sooner rather than later. Um, so we've done studies where we've looked at, you know, putting people into cold war for two or three minutes. And we'll find that we can, as I say, half their cold shock response after about six, three minute immersions. And that up to 14 months later, that reduction is still 25% reduced. 
So not only can we habituate fairly easily, it's quite a long lasting change. A huge theme across our episodes is racing and races and international elite athletes are featured across all seasons. And we started strongly with Kai Lenny in the first season and we've continued throughout, including with friend of the show, international paddler and 2020 Subconnect Woman of the Year, Maddie LeBlanc. Congratulations, Sup FM podcast. Holy shamolies. <laughs> the hundredth episode. That's insane. That is something to be very proud of. You guys are awesome. My favorite paddling podcast ever. And keep making more because I love listening. Bye, guys. Thanks to Maddie, who has been just one of a number of stellar guests we've spoken to on the pod, including Fiona Wilde, Casper Steinfeth, and the Olympian Larry Kane. And of course, the GOAT, greatest of all time, Candice Appleby, who's got the combined dominance and longevity of both Venus and Serena Williams. In fact, she's much better than that because Candice is still going and she is the greatest sub-athlete of all time, not just the greatest female sub-athlete of all time. And if we're talking racing, one of the approaches I've taken in these interviews is to try and harvest my guests' insights because they're top performers who've clearly discovered effective approaches to succeed. And while they do have natural physical abilities, knowing what to focus on and what to work on, as well as putting that work in, is generally what makes the difference. And one of the chats that really stood out for me was with Michael Booth, the Australian world champion. And I got some incredible insights from him, particularly around his attitude to learning and picking up new skills, which I found pretty inspiring. But I also asked him about his approach to sport and how it crossed over with his education and his career choices. You had a kind of sliding doors moment where you had the option of going into sport or going into a career as an engineer. Do you think you bring that engineer type mindset to your paddling I think I do in a way I'm always sort of evaluating like different things like I really try and break things down I know and I come out of a race and and I do poorly or I don't have the result that I I need to I need to really evaluate and work out what I did wrong and and how I'm going to get better like there was I guess an example when I it was it was Bill Bauer 2018 I think it was and I was racing Bruno Sulio to the finish line and I, I, I was slipping on my paddle. I think I slipped two or three times coming into the final sprint and it just frustrated me to no end because I was like, well, I didn't do my best performance and that's something that I always strive to do. Whether I win or lose, I always want to be able to do the best I can on the day and I, I get to that finish line, couldn't have done any more. And from then on, I just I started putting this BMG Dragon Grip that one of my sponsors created and my, I don't slip anymore. So like, I think that's kind of like that technical aspect I take to things and I've changed fins a lot. In a way, I guess I do use that, like that, that sort of mindset of an engineer. But I also am someone who tries to eliminate variables. So when I'm when I'm racing or when I'm training or when I'm traveling, I try and have the least amount of variables that I need to perform well. So I've never been somebody who needs to eat a certain breakfast or paddle a certain board or have a certain fin or you know, like I, I've just gone okay, right, like that stresses me out too much. So I can just grab anything and do well. That's that's always the plan. For example, I'm segueing a bit here, but in China in 2019, I actually didn't have a board to race on the night before the final of that race. 
So that's that, that those sort of challenges come to it. But coming back to that sort of like a, I guess epiphany moment where back in I think it was two thousand and geez, it must be two thousand and eleven. I think I decided. I wasn't going to do uni anymore with engineering. It was basically I wanted to be a, I could either be a sports person or continue with my degree. And instead of finishing, I was doing a double in business and, and engineering and I could do the business part online and I couldn't do the engineering online. So I went, right, I'm going to go down the path of, of business and, and I'm going to have a real crack at this sport. And I guess what I've learned is as well is if the people who take risks generally succeed and the people who kind of don't take that risk and don't, I guess, commit all of their time and their energy into their passion or into something that they want to achieve, they don't achieve it. So I've always been somebody who's gone, right, well, I guess you, you only live once and it sounds a bit cliche, but you've got to have a crack and, and do the best you can at all times. Another racer that I developed an affinity with was April Zilg. And I could have included April in any of these SUPFM theme categories, particularly environmental protection, as she's a former marine biologist and seahorse breeder which we discuss, but April has had a pretty rapid journey to her racing dominance today. She did it all over 10 years through a scientific approach, which is also a logical one. And her rapid journey leaves some pretty decent clues as to how others can use the same approach as her if performance racing is your goal or if you've got something else you want to get after. I've been paddling for 10 years as well. I do a bit of instruction, clearly not coaching to the same level um, that you do. But I think one of the advantages about coming to the sport relatively late and doing it for a concentrated period of time is that you can remember all of those stages that you went through. And I think that really helps when you're coaching people, because a lot of those problems that you're solving as an athlete, you can then help people out when they're going through it. Oh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um and for me to have realized my goal, even definitely like five, six, seven years in, I was like, oh my gosh, this is never going to happen, right? Like I, I definitely started losing steam and losing confidence. Um, but I didn't, just every time I, I found another hole, like another thing that I was like, nope, I could change that. And if that doesn't work, then next year I'll quit. But then I would I would fix the one thing and I'd be like, oh wait, no, but there's this one more thing. And if I fix that, then I'll, you know, and it doesn't work, then I'll quit. And having worked through them all, I do think I, I have a lot to offer people um, in terms of coaching because a lot of athletes were born athletes and they, they don't necessarily know why they're so amazing and they are amazing. And I advocate in terms of like getting coaching or clinics, anytime there's clinics at races, sign up for them. There's no like, oh, I signed up for hers, so I don't need to sign up for his. Sign up for every single top pros clinic at some point or another, because each one of them is going to explain essentially the same stroke, the same topics in a slightly different way. And you never know which one of them is going to resonate with you. And when I started paddling, I, I took clinics with every single paddler, like everyone that was, that was doing a clinic. Um, but yeah, I, I do feel like in overcoming all of the obstacles, I have a lot more tools in my toolkit to help other people over, overcome those exact same, um, obstacles. And the last one, uh, so I'll go off on a slight tangent here and tell you like the one that I think the one that 
I think made the biggest difference that I wish I hadn't waited so long to test or waited so long to, uh, you know, try was the, the aerobic base work. And I don't know if you had seen, I've been, I actually bought a blood lactate meter to test my, my lactic acid levels when I'm paddling because I wanted to be sure that I had my aerobic threshold like perfectly pinned for like an eight month block of aerobic training. And sure enough, it was way lower than I thought it was. So for seven years, I was training at too high of an intensity to yield the adaptations inside my body that I, I needed to reach that next level. Um, I had fixed my nutrition. So you, you can say that it was the thing, but it wasn't really because there's was all the other things that I already did. Um, but I do wish it was the thing that I did first because I would have um, spent a lot less time doing like the under eating and the overtraining kind of scenario, mm. which was a, a big time suck. As always, a huge thank you to Starboard, who are once again this season's main sponsors. Starboard has a history of innovation across water sports, starting in 1994 by revolutionising the design of windsurf boards. And they've brought that bang up to date recently, bringing foil windsurfing onto the Olympic stage with their IQ foil package. Starboard got behind stand-up paddleboarding in a huge way in the early days and continue to lead the industry to reduce their environmental impact. Their focus on innovation brought them seven world champions at the ICF Worlds last year, and all of them were using their Lima paddle range. They continue to improve and innovate their boards and their paddles for all abilities across all flavours of the sport, including adventure. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website, which is linked to in the show notes. The next thing we visited a lot on the show is environmental protection of the water. And whether you're doing a five minute beach clean or whether you're founding an environmental organisation, we've all had the same experience when we stand on water and look at the land and see the waste that people throw away along the banks and the shoreline. And it's that that tends to make more paddlers more concerned about taking action to protect the water and its wildlife. So with interviews with people like Cal Major, who made protecting the natural water environment a feature of her filmmaking and her expeditions, from Lizzie Carr and her Planet Patrol, and with Starboard's industry leadership on protecting the environment, it's something we all need is needed. However, someone protecting water in a slightly different way is Joe, who paddles the water of the Potomac River downstream from Washington, D.C., and Joe has a very individual approach to clearing the trash, which he does in a fairly quiet way without preaching. And just by setting an example and telling his stories in an entertaining way, he's influenced a lot of people to do the same thing that he does. And in terms of the stuff he deals with, sometimes what he has to deal with is a bit bigger than your normal average plastic bottles. You might recognise Joe on Instagram as his alter ego, Sup Garbage Man. So let's just talk a little bit about your finds, because you've handled some pretty big discoveries, haven't you? What were the worst ones that you had to deal with and, and how did you how did you get them back? Yeah, so I have had a, a few uh, large finds. Uh, it, one thing that shocks me is how many big things are out in the, in the river. I found uh, all kinds of uh, uh, cones, barrels and stuff like that. 
uh, one of the, or a couple of the most memorable I found a barrel, like it was a rain barrel, 55 gallon rain barrel, blue plastic rain barrel floating out in the, in the middle of the river. I guess it was closer to one side, but I tried to get it onto the board and it was, it it wasn't completely full of water, but there was enough in there that I couldn't get it up onto the board uh, without, you know, knowing I was going over. Uh, And so I wished at that point that I had uh, a rope or something I could, you know, attach it to the board. I mean, I could have just paddled away and been like, oh, well, you know, but nope, I, I like the challenge of it. So I ended up pushing that thing for 30 minutes with the nose of my board uh, towards the shoreline. Uh, and that was, uh, that must have been a sight to see. Uh, just, you know, you get a couple good paddles in and then the board kind of slips off of it and uh, whatnot. But I ended up getting it to the shore and uh, was able to unscrew the, the lid and, and dump the, the water out. Uh, and then it was much easier to put on the board at that point. It was empty. But after that, I, I ended up putting a uh, or adding a uh, plastic chain and a rope i had found both of them in the river actually so it was kind of nice to be able to reuse that to my to my setup uh, where i attach the the chain to the leash attachment on the back uh, and i leave it on the board uh, when i go out just in case i find something and then i have a a rope in my dry bag that i'll attach to it if i ever find anything and need a tow and uh, there was one day that i ended up paddling and found a uh, bathtub shaped piece of floating dock that was 21 cubic feet in itself. Yeah, it did not fit into the truck. Uh, there was no way I was going to get on the board. There's no way I was going to push it, but I knew I had my tow rope. Uh, and so I was able to attach it. It had some holes drilled in it from where it apparently was screwed uh, to, the, to the dock or the wood that was on top. And I attached it and then <sighs> begrudgingly started paddling back and it just happened to be one of those days where the tide was going out and the wind was in my face so it was a, nice. a 45 minute yeah 45 uh. minute to an hour paddle when it was only like a half a mile at that point because it was i found it right right after i got out and uh yeah. it was a brutal haul um and i had to you know flip the thing up a hill to get it into the truck it was uh it was uh, it was a beast that sounds horrendous. I mean, this must take quite a toll on your paddleboard and paddle. Have you broken any during your uh, recoveries? Because there was what a um, a metal bucket full of concrete and all sorts of things you've had to transport. That can't be uh, that can't be light for your paddle and your paddleboard to deal with. No, it's it's not. I I ended up buying an inflatable paddleboard in August because I wanted to get something that was a little more stable. Because the hardboard that I had, uh, fiberglass board, was uh, getting scratched up and banged up on rocks and I didn't want to Mm. break it. So I wanted to get something that was inflatable to be able to uh, handle that. And uh, I ended up buying one with a 435 pound weight limit, uh, knowing what I was going to put it through. And it, I haven't been able to sink that thing or flip it yet. Um, The amount of (laughs) stuff that I put on there, I've had one of those like no wake buoys that was 103 pounds. I think I found uh, a set of three, Three tires. One was like a giant truck tire that was 103 pounds by itself. I uh, had all that on there. And uh, the trick just comes to uh, being able to stack it just right so it doesn't get top heavy. But I haven't haven't broken anything um, at all, actually, yet. Knock on wood. Good effort. And and where do you draw the line in terms of size? I mean, you know, I'm sure this stuff gets silted up, doesn't it? The tires, you have to dig them out. You know, where, where would you draw the line? Is it purely a sort of safety line as to if you think it's going to sink you? Yeah, there, there are a few things that I've seen that I can't like uh, get. Um, the, the weight, I guess, would be the, the line. Uh, if I can safely get it onto the board, 
because usually I'm out by myself. And so if I have something that's too large for me to uh, flip or pick up by myself, um, I don't want to you know risk hurting my back or anything like that. So it's more mm-hmm. of a, a physical, personal safety than it is the board. Because um, I'm pretty sure my board will handle anything I put on it. There was one time I found uh, like a seven-foot styrofoam log. Uh, I don't know what it was from, but I saw it and I first thing I thought was I'll put it long ways on the board and I'll straddle it and I'll put it on top of the milk crates and you know and uh, and it'll be fine. Yeah, no, that didn't work. Uh, kind of toppled the board. Thankfully, it was close to shore and was able to put everything back. I ended up taking that and ended up turning it sideways on the board to make the board you know from the top look like a giant letter T. Uh, huh. And so it really comes down to like the weight and then how am I going to be able to put it on the board? Um, mm-hmm. Sadly, there are a few things out there that I know that uh, I that are there that I can't can't get currently. So I might end up uh, bringing a one of my other paddle boards with me one day and just towing that back if I can flip it over onto that board. One of the most important topics that everyone likes to hear about is the mental health benefits and the physical benefits we gain from the sport. And Charlie Jones, the SUP physio in episode 84, talked about the physical benefits as well as the University of Portsmouth team back in episode 62 in two of our most downloaded episodes. But we've also been very focused on the mental health benefits too. And the subject comes up with most guests pretty much all the explorers and we've had some really detailed chats about this with Sam Rutt and with Dave Knight from the UK in episodes 52 and 82. However, the guest that probably helped the most with this subject is New York Times best-selling author of the book Blue Mind, Wallace J. Nichols, who appeared in episode 92 and who brought us the science to prove something that we already understood. Could you share some of the more memorable studies that you've either taken part in or, or which had, had proved the effects of water in, in a hard scientific way? Yeah. So, you know, like you said, the, the old way of, of studying the brain was you could ask people questions while they were alive and believe what they told you, which is, you know, people, people don't always know what's going on inside their head. So that's kind of how psychology went on for a while. And then you you could study their brain after they were done using it. Basically, after they'd passed, you could check out their brain and say, okay, maybe there were some anomalies, maybe some injuries, some differences, and map those back to the behavior of the individual while, while they were alive. So now we're able to look at the human brain while it's still in use. And that's done by taking blood samples and saliva samples. It's done through neuroimaging through fMRIs, or all, um, which measure oxygen as a proxy for brain activity, and then EEGs, which measure electricity. And even those technologies are advancing. Even in recent years, we're getting more powerful um, neuroimaging technologies and waterproof mobile EEGs. So where that leads us is to a place where you could put on an EEG and hop on your paddleboard and go for a paddle and a scientist could record your brain activity. Or you could sit in a bath and have your brain watched. And so some of the some of the really cool research that's being done um, in, I guess you could say a controlled environment is in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. There's a, 
a friend there, colleague named Justin Feinstein, who studies the brain uh, on water, but in these in these float tanks. So basically, it's a uh, hypersaline water about 18 inches deep that you float in, but there's no light and no sound. And his float tanks are extremely well built to remove any light or sound, or any vibration of the building or traffic nearby. And he basically puts people into a brain scanner and fmri then has them do a float session and then when they pop out they get their brain scanned again and also get asked a whole bunch of questions and but while they're floating they're also wearing a waterproof eeg and there's kind of a night vision kind of radar going to see how their body basically looks at their, your skeleton so uh, people aren't too freaked out about having their having an image of them floating naked they it's just a skeleton that's being mm. observed and so they put all that together, and what they found is that therapeutically, floating in water is as good as or better than many, if not all, of the other kinds of therapies that are being used to treat anxiety disorders, uh, depression, distraction, post-traumatic stress, which are themes that this research center has been studying for, for quite a few years. So you can't run around always with a float tank, but um, there's a continuum of activities ranging from what I would call extreme blue mind to more you know milder applications of of the idea. So jumping in cold water for a little while, floating in your bathtub, um, going for a paddle, they, they all have elements of extreme blue mind in them. So it's, there's this kind of continuum of activities. So when you're when you're out on a paddleboard, you're you're achieving some, aspects of of what you know we would say would be the ex extreme version of it um especially if you go for a swim off of your board mm -hmm. and you're adding that element to it uh you're out on the water visually auditorily somatically you're shifting into a, a different place your mind shifts into a different state uh, the stress hormones are decreasing um the quote-unquote feel-good hormones are increasing and the things that had been distracting you uh, are they're gone the screens are gone uh, maybe the sounds of traffic and dogs barking and leaf blowers or whatever it is that distracts you on land those go away uh, and your brain doesn't just go to sleep as you may imagine it shifts into a different mode and that's what we call blue mind which is good at different things you know, uh, directed attention is important but we do so much of it on land. Um, mind wandering is also important, but we have a hard time doing that on land. Um, this psychologists call it soft fascination. It's it's how the the water holds your attention, but it isn't throwing information at you, um, like a forest does or like like screens do. So you get this. Um, you're not, you're not bored by the water. It holds your attention, but it doesn't demand you to process language and Im images and words. Um, and so we, we switch into this this other state, which turns out is really good at problem solving and um, new creative ideas. And it's good it's good at collaboration. Uh, it's good at calm calm thinking, uh, more more a more meditative approach 
to figuring things out. So we go back to the float tank. What we see is creative people go to the float tank to solve problems or to come up with new things. Um, musicians and artists and entrepreneurs, elite athletes go into float tanks to hit the big reset button and take their mind out of the, this rumination place where they they spend so much time you know self self-critical thinking and um frustration about a bad game or a bad day or fear about the next day in the water they get they get away from that and they get they get true mental rest and so we seek out these activities such as paddleboarding to to to, to get us there and finally we've got the industry figures and sub personalities who come at this from many years of rolling up their sleeves and getting involved in the sport, either from creating products and brands like Sven Rasmussen from Starboard or John Hibbard from Red. Those without a conventional history in sport, but inspiring others of whatever age to just get on and do it, like Joe Mosley. Or figures like Christian Thomas, who has influenced across so much of the sport, it's difficult to pin her down to a particular area, but in this section, I've got to share a clip from my chat with Sarah Thornley, a.k.a. Sup Junkie, who's been a bit of a collaborator with me since we had this interview, but who has done more than anyone to get out there and share her love of sup racing and to support it in lots of ways. And she's made a huge contribution to GB Sup. And currently, there is a hugely talented array of competitors across all age groups in Great Britain through a vibrant SUP racing scene. Now, Sarah had a successful racing career, including winning a national title, but she's always keen to encourage others to take part. And in my chat with her, I asked her about her start in SUP racing. So it, it sounds quite scary, you know, being a sup racer or any kind of racer when it's your first experience. But when you've got a really decent group of people who love their sport and love to encourage newcomers, then it's not such a big deal. So I've made some amazing, amazing friends. I'm sure like you have in the sup world, you know, they're, they're all a decent bunch, seem to be a decent bunch of people. So it, yeah, I, I just got stuck in. So I raced for five years and I, the 14-foot the class, which is what I was in, it was just the board that I bought. It was quite a small field then. It wasn't like it is now. Everybody sort of transitioned over. And we were a small group of ladies who were, you know, racing against each other with quite a small team, quite bonded, I suppose, because of what we were doing. But there were a couple of girls, in who, you know, in there who were pretty fierce, and I probably was the oldest person racing at that time in that category, and I, I remember a friend saying, you know, who's your nemesis? And I said, oh, it's Christine Anderson. She's a proper water woman. I mean, years on the water, windsurfing, every kind of water sport, never beat her. And he said, oh, you mustn't be defeatist about it. I said, I'm not. I'm being realistic. She's an amazing, you know, paddler. But in 2017, with just a bit of luck and doing every race possible, I think I did 16 races in six months or something, I was determined to really sort of crack it that season. And it ended up with me just putting myself out there, a bit of good luck, a bit of bad luck on her behalf and others. And I won the national championship, which was quite incredible. I think I've appreciated more now. I've stepped away from it maybe, but I was, yeah, thrilled. And it was against girls who were half my age. And yeah, I'm, I'm more proud of it now, I think, than I was at the time. 
I realised that it was pretty cool to do that at aged 58. <laughs> and just to re-emphasise, that was independent of age categories. So it just goes to show that if you get in there and you really give it 100%, you can achieve anything. Absolutely. And I really, uh, really appreciate and acknowledge that more nowadays and, and really sort of want to push that, especially for women, I think, get to a certain age and feel that, you know, it, it, it might be too tough. I don't think it is tough. I think get out there and if you're fit and, you know, you, you can have a go and just have a go. <laughs> That's my mantra. Just have a go. So those are themes and a few of the great guests we've had on. And I hope that's given you a taster of some episodes to catch up on and the appetite to subscribe to SUPFM on your favourite podcast provider and follow us on Instagram and Facebook and to sign up to our newsletter over at supfmpodcast.com forward slash list. So there we have it. SUPFM podcast has reached 100 episodes. Thank you to everyone who's made this possible, particularly Nick my wife Sarah, to Sarah Sup Junkie and to all of the incredible guests who have appeared on the show since 2015. A big thank you to the companies who have given their support, particularly Sven and Paul from Starboard, our season sponsors, and also to Baltic Life Jackets, Zenway and What's Up for their support across season five. Over the last 100 episodes, we've truly become an international podcast with a following across the world. So we're not just downloaded in the UK, but in every state across the US, across Australia, Canada, Europe, India, New Zealand. We're up to 118 countries and still counting. And finally, I wanted to say the biggest thank you to you, you who are listening to this right now. And I hope that we've helped to inspire or to expand your paddle experience and knowledge in some way by sharing the stories from our guests and that it's helped you to develop your own paddle journey. So that's the first hundred episodes done. We've got a couple of episodes left of season five, a couple of bonus episode collaborations to come, including this year's SuperFM Book Club and who knows what's coming in 2023. So take care. Thanks again. And I'll see you on the water.